2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we ask you, brothers, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken in your mind or be alarmed, whether by a spirit or a word or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it has not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the sanctuary of God, exhibiting himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? I'll just stop there briefly there. First, uh, we must take note, Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know about the Antichrist. In chapter 1 of this letter, he talks about how the Thessalonians were suffering because of afflictions. And he tells them that um, it's, since it's right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give you rest Rest to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ with his mighty angels in flaming fire, executing vengeance on, them, on those who do not know God. So, in other words, they had been seriously afflicted. And in their afflictions, he still reminds them about the Antichrist, because their afflictions were part of what we're going to see, is the Antichrist spirit. And so... He had taught them about this and he reminds them about this, even though they had plenty of other things to think about, like how to survive their present afflictions and sufferings. But the other thing about it comes out here is, now we ask you, brothers, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you be not quickly shaken in your mind or be alarmed, whether by a spirit or a word or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Because the Antichrist is associated with the final times, the day of the Lord, and suddenly people were being shaken, are being disturbed, alarmed in their minds because somebody was trying to deceive them. And Paul was trying to say, no, no, no. This, what you've heard, whether by spirit or word or by letter, as if from us, they were faking some sort of apostolic authority, and Paul's apostolic authority, had alarmed them and disturbed them. And Paul was saying, don't. Don't be alarmed, don't disturb, because there's two things he talks about has to happen first, and they haven't happened yet. So, in other words, the enemy is seeking to fake news about the Antichrist and about the end of the world. Why is he trying to do that? He's trying to alarm and disturb believers. Now, the Antichrist is going to come. There's no doubt about that. Paul makes it absolutely clear, clear and he gives quite a bit of uh, knowledge about this Antichrist's identity. So it shows us that the issue of the Antichrist is important. It's important so that enough so that Jesus reveals that there is an Antichrist, that the Bible from Daniel, and particularly in Daniel Revelation, reveal an awful lot about the Antichrist. But the other thing is, is that the enemy doesn't want it revealed. So what he tries to do is deceive people as to the end times and the nature of the Antichrist. He doesn't want to be known, and one day he will be known, because when he who restrains is taken out of the way, then the Antichrist is revealed. So it's very important for us to know that. Um, now... So what the enemy is doing, because of all these books, you know, I mentioned the numerous people who have been uh, credited with the title of Antichrist or Antichrist to come, is misidentification. Misidentification. Now, there's a, in, I want to just mention one or two principles of interpretation which will save us from misidentifying the Antichrist and a whole host of other things. These are principles of interpretation which are biblical, which is important if you're going to delve into a subject like this because I can't deal with all of it. I will just deal with a little bit of it and then you can go away, you can read books, watch YouTube videos and see how much misidentification is actually out there but you will have a principle by which to judge what is being said. The principle comes... This first principle comes in a verse of scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says this. 
that you may learn not to go beyond what is written. You find all these misidentifications? They go beyond what is written. That you may learn not to go beyond what is written. He's very, very clear about that. And then what he, he, he then gives the reason why. So that no one of you may become puffed up on behalf of one against the other. There's an element of pride comes in. I know who the Antichrist is. And then you argue against who he thinks the Antichrist is and somebody else that thinks the Antichrist is. And so you have a division over something that goes beyond what is written. And we are not entitled to go beyond what is written. So that's a principle of interpretation when you see all this YouTube stuff or read books about the Antichrist and all the rest of it. Be clear. Are they sticking to the Bible or are they adding bits to the Bible? Because those books very often will alarm you. And those books will actually um, cause you to be shaken in your mind. That's the misidentification. The same satanic policy that Paul was talking about to the Thessalonians. Okay. Now there's another principle. There's two more I want of interpretation that's important when you consider the Antichrist. And that is this. The doctrine of interpretation which is known as double reference. Now, you're all familiar with this. Double reference really means that somebody gives a prophetic word and there are two elements in that, a near one and a far one. For example, if you um, turn to Acts 2, I'll just read it out. This is an example of double reference, which you're all familiar with. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and on your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female slaves, I will in those days pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will put wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and the vapour of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that's one prophetic thing, comes from Joel, you can look it up in Joel chapter 2 verse 28 following, but what you find is there are two references here. One prophecy, two references. The first reference is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and the other reference is, is to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the very end when you have all these heavenly uh, and cosmic uh, disturbances the sun turn into darkness the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes that is an example of double reference in I think it's in uh, Luke 21 I've, I've got this down here I'll just quickly turn to Luke 21 um, yeah Jesus gives this great talk about uh what's going to happen, and much of the reference is to what happens in AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem, but then he immediately goes into what happens at the very end of the world. So he, it's like that prophetic word has two references, the near one and the far one. you find this in Daniel chapter 11, which we're going to look at in a minute, and Daniel 11 is, talks about one of the Seleucid kings uh, a whole load of Seleucid kings, but one in particular called Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, and he and his controversy with the, the, uh, the um, Ptolemaic king of Egypt and the movement of the armies between the two, the conquests and the constantly raging at one another. And it talks about his character and it talks about what he does. But it also is made very, very clear in Daniel, the next chapter, Daniel 12, and indeed in Daniel 11 itself, that he's taught that what is being referred to is not just Antiochus IV, but somebody else who is to come. There's references to the end times. And Jesus actually affirms that, 
Because uh, one thing that Antiochus IV did, he set up the abomination of desolation, where he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple at Jerusalem. It's called the abomination of desolation. And Jesus refers this in, I think, Matthew 24. And he talks about the, when you see the abomination of desolation that was written about by the prophet Daniel. So, in other words, it can't have been the one Antiochus was referring to, or only that one. It must be another one, because Jesus lived well after Antiochus was dead. So there's that double reference, and you'll find this when you look at, the, particularly when you look at the book of Daniel. So um, if you feel confused, look for the issue of double reference. And the other interpretive principle, and I, I emphasize these things because it, it gives us a grid by which we can look at the scripture and understand them, is the issue of typology. A typology is something in, usually in the Old Testament which is a prefigurement of something that's going to happen in the new. For example, the sacrificial system. It's a type of the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifice of bulls and goats cannot take away mankind's sins, but they prefigured the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So it's the whole issue of typology, which is absolutely fascinating if you ever read into typology. It opens up the Bible extraordinarily. Okay. Well, you also find that this um, double reference refers to people. In Ezekiel 28, you have this issue of um, the devil. <laughs> and what happens is that there are, it's a prophecy against the king of Tyre. And then what happens, he suddenly goes and talks about the king of Tyre as if in ways which have no application to that particular individual. Listen to this. This is from Ezekiel 28. Because your heart is lofty and you have said, I am a God, I sit enthroned in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are a man, not a God, although you make your heart like the heart of God. That's the king of Tyre. He made his heart like the king of God. He sit in, in the heart of the seas. He was in Tyre. It was a fishing and, and, and very great maritime trading center. But he was a man and not God. But then he, the Bible reveals what was behind that man's thinking. And the prophecy goes, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the mountain of God. You walked in the midst of stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Same prophecy, two references. One was the king of Tyre. The other one was the devil himself. And the way, the reason why they're compounded is because the king of Tyre was saying, I'm a god, or something like that, because behind him was a satanic spirit. And so in that one revelation, there are two references. Uh, and it's incredibly explanatory. You find that in Isaiah 14, where it talks about the king of Babylon. And then it goes into another prophecy about um, the devil. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. That's not the king of Babylon, but it's in a prophecy about the king of Babylon. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That's a reference to the devil, because the devil was behind the king of Babylon. So we can learn an awful lot about two individuals, king of Babylon and the devil, in that one prophecy. So that's like a double reference. Now, another thing that I want to say right from the beginning, because it's an explanatory principle or for understanding the Antichrist. There's very, only three references to Antichrist in the Bible, right? And they come in the letters of John. First is 1 John 1.18, which I'll read out. Children, now he is talking to people like you and me, right? He wants people like you and me to know this. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. For this is where we know, uh, from this we know it is the last hour. And later on he says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. But notice that verse 18. You heard that Antichrist is coming. So that's a singular thing. There is somebody called the Antichrist. All right? But even now, many Antichrists have appeared. Now, 
In other words, there is a big antichrist to come, but now there are many antichrists. People who give in to the spirit of antichrist reflect his nature, his purpose, his and his ultimately his destiny. So that remember when I talked about Babylon quite a couple of years ago or something else like this, and the essential nature of the Babylonian Empire was that it was anti-messianic. And anti-messianic is anti-Christian, anti-Christ. That is the essential nature of Babylon. All through the ages, it persecuted uh, and committed genocidal acts, or hoped to, against the Jewish people who were God's people under the Old Covenant. So you will find that the spirit of Antichrist is in Cambridge now. And this is a prelude to the outbreaking and the revelation of a world-dominant Antichrist to come. So that when we talk about the Antichrist, we're not talking about something that you are unfamiliar with. Remember when you were lost in your sins, hostile to God, unsaved in the, under the dominion of Satan, in Satan's kingdom? You were Antichrist. You were run by the spirit that of the air that works in the sons of disobedience. That's an antichrist spirit. You disliked Christ. Remember what James said about the young lady evangelizing in Jerusalem? Spat upon, kicked. Why? Because that Judaism is essentially an antichrist system. It denies the father and the son. It doesn't have the son, therefore it doesn't have the father. And it's essentially opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, first uh, let me mention the word antichrist itself can mean opposed to Christ and also it can mean in place of Christ. All right? So when you find that people deny the Father and the Son, that is something antichrist. And we did in our lives at one point. So the antichrist ruled our lives at one point and Jesus has delivered us from the power and spirit of the Antichrist. At the moment, Cambridge, where you are, and all the surrounding areas where you come from, they are under the influence and power of the Antichrist. And as his system grows, so his control over them will grow, and so the Antichrist nature that wants to spit and kick at Christians and kill them will grow. That's the situation we face now. Okay? And um, notice when we read that bit about uh, from 2 Thessalonians 2, it says, the great apostasy followed by, the, apo the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now you jolly well know if there's an apostasy happening in the churches in the Western world today, that goes beyond anything else in the past. I and mean, the Roman Catholics have always been had this large element of paganism and, and uh, deception and all the rest of it. But we are finding other denominations that were actually born of God, actually had a good, strong, healthy, biblical foundation, turning away from Christ and absorbing the spirit of the world. That's a great apostasy. That's where we are now. Okay, It's never before happened to this extent as it's happening now. And then the man of lawlessness will be revealed because if you're apostate, then you're paving the way for the man of lawlessness because all the opposition to the Antichrist system has been diminished and it is gone. And so the Antichrist just loves that. He loves that beyond uh, anything else. Now, because the church is the only place on earth, only institution on earth that can oppose him and overcome him, okay? Now, there's actually another reference to the Antichrist, but it's a similar thing in uh, 2 John. Now, when you go back to the book of Daniel, now here we're going to look at the Antichrist system. You go back to the book of Daniel, and you go back to, well, you can go right back to chapter 2, to Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream, and he has this dream. And Daniel interprets the dream for me. He tells him what the dream is. Uh, 
This was the dream. Now we'll say it's interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom God, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men inhabit, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has made you rule with power over them all. You are the head of gold. Remember the statue was a head of gold. It was the chest and arms of silver. It was the middle, basically, of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay. And they were four kingdoms. And the final kingdom, which was more wicked, as we can see, that we'll see than any others, was finally destroyed by a stone not cut out by human hand, which hits those feet, and the whole thing collapses and is destroyed. So we know that final kingdom is the kingdom that's here when Jesus returns. That's that Roman Empire that came about. But, and uh, you are the head of gold. After you shall rise another kingdom inferior to you, and then another kingdom of bronze, which will rule with power over all the earth. Now, this is the next one, is the kingdom that is coming, okay? This is what we will face. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will break, it will crush and break all these in pieces. So it is a more ferocious and terrifying kingdom, more powerful, stronger than any of the others. Now, this is then mirrored in Daniel chapter 7, where he talks about these four kingdoms as beasts. No, he talks about them as beasts, not nice little animals, but as beasts, almost like inhuman constructs. And he says this, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had wings of an eagle, I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given it. And behold, another beast, the second one in the likeness of a bear, and it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, behold, another one like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And this is the final one the one that's to come. After this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, fearsome and terrifying and extraordinarily strong and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet and it was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. I don't want to go into the ten horns. That's another subject for later on. But what we find is that, and if I go right to Revelation chapter 13, you'll find exactly the same again, and this is what it says. And the dragon stood on, that's the devil, stood on the sand of the seashore. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Remember, Daniel's came out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. Daniel's uh, beast that he'd just written about had uh, ten horns. And on his horns were ten diadems, on his head were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Remember, they were the, the animal designations of the first three beasts. Now he's talking about another beast which has all of these incorporated into it. And it's more fearsome, more terrible than all the others before. It's the culmination of all the Antichrist kingdoms of the past, of the uh, Babylonian one, the Persian one, the Greek one, and the Roman one of the first few centuries AD. They all come together, and suddenly you've got this concoction that is worse than the, any of the single ones themselves. It's like compacted evil, and that's what the world is coming to. And... Um, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now suddenly these beasts are being referred to as a person. The dragon gave him. And, um, and they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And he opened his mouth. So they have a reference to a beast which is a kingdom... And also that beast is a person. And that person, of course, be the somebody who opposes Jesus uh, enormously. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and those that dwell in heaven. 
course, he also opened his mouth against people like us because we are like the people in heaven. We are citizens of heaven after all. And it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. So this empire then is not localized like Persia or like Babylon or like the Rome of the first or the Greeks or the Rome of the first two centuries. This is over the whole earth. Okay? Now, the reason that is is because the, initially the Jews, which were the people of God, were localized, they were a geopolitical entity somewhere in the Middle East. So you had to oppress them and then you're oppressing basically the revelation of God that God had given the world. But now the gospel has gone from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. You need to control the whole earth if you want to stop the church of Jesus Christ because it is everywhere, okay? So that he needs that power. Now, um, oh, by the way, at the end of uh, Revelation 13, what I was talking about, again, it, it references that uh, beast kingdom that we read about in Daniel, as a person. As another beast comes out of the earth, speaking light as a dragon, exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. That word authority is very important there because the Antichrist is going to come up as a person of authority. And it says, for example, um, in verse 4, and they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war against him? And the prophet comes and he's speaking with authority and he exercised the authority of the beast. So we're coming to a system that speaks with authority. It speaks with power, sufficient to take control of the whole world. This is the spirit and power of the Antichrist. Who is able to wage war against it? In other words, people are so enamoured and so overcome by a sense of its power that they think, there is nothing they can do against it. They will submit to it. And they do. And suddenly people end up submitting to something that will promise them all sorts of lovely things but will actually control their lives. They will become spiritual because they will worship the Antichrist. And he exercises the authority of the first beast in his presence and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. So you the whole world goes into worship. All the atheists out there who despise worship, would never worship God, they'll end up worshipping. The world is heading towards worship. Because if you don't worship the beast and the image set up by the false prophet, this guy we're talking about now, you will be put to death. And it was given to him to, to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Okay. So we have a regime coming that is utter intimidation, coercion. It, worship is mandatory. Remember in Nebuchadnezzar, in Nebuchadnezzar's statue on the plain of Jura, he sets up this great big thing and he says, when you hear the sounds of all these musical instruments... You will worship this thing. If you don't, you will be killed. You'll be thrown into the fire. Exactly that same spirit, which there was localized, now becomes universal. And the Bible talks about the multitudes that have come out of the tribulation. They've been killed. It talks of the whore of Babylon. Remember that talk on the whore of Babylon? Who rides on the beast, which is covered with blasphemous names. Who rides. He carries her because she is an entrapment for him and she is drunk with the blood of the saints. People like you and me. So, but don't get afraid. Nowhere in the Bible does you are ever told to be afraid of the Antichrist or his system or anything he does. He only is working because he's afraid of you. Okay? That's why he wants you out of the way. You will either succumb and worship the image, the beast, the Antichrist, or you will die. And he is hoping that you don't want to die. You'd rather worship the Antichrist and live. He is depending on you to succor him. He is depending that you will accept the intimidation and the threat 
that he is putting out. So, in one sense, you know, the Bible talks about him being restrained in 2 Thessalonians. I better read that bit again. Well, I haven't read that bit yet, but uh, here we go. Um, and you know what restrains him now. This is the Antichrist. You know what restrains him now. So that in his time, he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth and, by, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, whose coming is in accord with the working of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. So you have this chap coming along who is claiming to be God. Because, as we read in the first uh, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the sanctuary of God, exhibiting himself as being God. And he can back it up with signs and wonders. Remember, he has all the authority of the dragon. He backs it up with signs and wonders. And it talks about the deception, the deluding influence and the deception of righteousness, unrighteousness. He, he does this with power, signs and wonders and with all the deception of unrighteousness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God sends them on them a deluding influence so they will believe what is false in order that they may, or they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness. You see, the whole Antichrist system is built on that, that you will take pleasure in unrighteousness and then you will cease to be a church. All right? Because the church is, is under the authority of Jesus and he's a righteous God. And this antichrist system is working all the way through, creating that apostasy throughout the whole... You look how many churches there are in Cambridge area and all the rest of the area and how many are apostate. And they now take pleasure in unrighteousness. Oh, let's marry gays, let's bless their marriages, let's do this, that and the other. That is taking pleasure in unrighteousness. That is the deception of unrighteousness. Okay, so that spirit of Antichrist, which is leading to the revelation of the Antichrist himself, is preparing the ground. Right? He's going to hit the ground running because the opposition, he hopes, would have all succumbed to unrighteousness and to apostasy. And so he is depending on the fact that he, he can do this with the churches. Of course he has. By and large, he's already done it. The great apostasy is upon us. And we are now in that stage. And the next thing, oh, the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. I don't know when he's going to be revealed. I don't know who he is. Um, but that is where we are. In Daniel 7... Daniel asks an angel because he's very distressed at the revelation of these terrible monsters that are coming upon the earth. He was alarmed. And these great beasts, he was told, are four kings who will arise on, from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever, for all ages to come. Then I decided to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, extraordinarily fearsome, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with his feet. The fourth beast, he's told in verse 23, will be a fourth kingdom from the earth, different from all the others, and will devour the whole earth, tread it down, and crush it. He will speak words against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Most High, of the Highest One, and will intend to make changes in seasons and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Remember, see, what we talked about, the Antichrist, is the man of lawlessness. And he tends to make changes in the seasons, the times, and the law. And where churches or governments make changes in the law, particularly referring to the law of Christ, they become lawless. They become governments or institutions of lawlessness. It's not that they don't believe anything, but what they believe is not the law of God, and that, and it, so it's sin. And the Bible says sin is lawlessness. Once we were lawlessness, we were lawless because we were sinners, unrestrained by 
godliness. We have worked in the deception of unrighteousness. And that is where the, the enemy is trying to take the whole world. Changes in times and seasons. And um, in Daniel chapter 11, I'm sorry I'm sort of flitting around here, but it's important that I bring these things out because, you know, in Daniel, this issue of the Antichrist and this beast is repeated again and again. It's repeated very accurately in the book of Revelation. Now, when you find something in the Bible that is repeated again and again, it's because God really wants you to know this. It really is important for you to know this. And so, in the book of um, Daniel, chapter 11, he's talking about a guy called Antiochus IV Epiphanes. His true title was Antiochus IV Theos Epiphanes, which really, Epiphanes means made manifest. Theos, God made manifest. He claimed to be a manifestation of Zeus, the king of the gods, the Greek god. He himself was one of the uh, Seleucid kings who... Uh, who inherited Babylonia and Syria and various other bits on the death of Alexander. It was a Greek uh, endowed um, kingdom, virtual empire. One of the four heads of the leopard that had four heads because the leopard was a uh, signification of Alexander. So all Bible prophecy being fulfilled right before our eyes in history. And he was a devious man. It calls him a despised person, a man of intrigue who practiced deception. And in his forays against the Ptolemies, who again, uh, the gift of Alexander's death, uh, another uh, Greek kingdom, empire, he uh, goes through, as he has to, the promised land, the Jewish land. Um, then he will return to his land. That's from, he's gone down to the south. He returns to his land, Syria, which is in the north. But his heart, and this is, uh, this is typology, all right? But it's also double reference here. His heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. He will take action and then return to his own land. And uh, later on it says... Mighty forces from him will stand, profane the sanctuary fortress and abolish the regular sacrifice. They will set up the abomination of desolation. I mean, Jesus referred to that. And by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. It doesn't say they'll run. It says they display strength and take action. So he, and then the king will do as he pleases and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak astonishing things against the god of gods and he will exceed until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. He will magnify himself above every god and that's, that uh, magnification against every god was also true of the other uh, kingdoms of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So this is a, uh, a precursor of the Antichrist, deceit, cunning, power, hates the covenant people, tries to destroy covenant worship. Now there's a book called the first book of Maccabees, which is not a canonical book, it's not in the Bible, but it is actually uh, uh, historically quite accurate at times, I'm sure, I can't vouch for the whole thing. And this is in, from 1 Maccabees. I'm not reading from the Bible now, okay? Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom, this is Antiochus IV, Theos Epiphanes, wrote to the whole kingdom that all, sh that all should be one people and that all should give up their particular customs. One people. This is the great mantra of the United Nations and of a lot of these sort of uh, occult groups that are pervading through the whole of society. We are one people, we should all be in harmony with one another. We shouldn't have exclusivistic views which create disharmony. We've all got to be inclusive. That's that horrible word, inclusive. By the way, the church is not inclusive, right? It, well, it does. It only includes the repentant. It excludes everybody else, okay? So we are exclusive. 
And we're quite happy to include anybody, but only if they put their trust in Jesus after repentance. So this idea of a one-world harmony, of course, is the thing that pervades all empires. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Many, even in Israel, gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and to the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane Sabbaths and festivals, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals, to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by every thing unclean and profane so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances he would change the seasons and the times he added and whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die so look this is a small example a limited localized example of something that jesus says will be in the end times, which will cover the world, which will be a manifestation of a kingdom and a person who is far worse than Antiochus IV, Theos Epiphanes. It's going to get bad. But the people who know their God will rise up and take action. They're not going to be afraid. Now, I know there's a lot of issues here about whether people are on earth when the Antichrist is going to come pre- or mid-tribulation rapture views and so on. I don't want to get into that at all because it doesn't matter. Because I'll tell you two reasons why it doesn't matter. One is that the spirit of Antichrist is here now in this world and many people are facing death by the thousands. You read what happens in Nigeria or in North Korea or China or uh, Middle East, a host of other countries, they are dying. I heard this guy being converted on a telephone line and it was went live or on YouTube. He was in Saudi Arabia and he wanted to be converted but his friends had told him if he converts to Christ he'd be dead probably within two or three days and he didn't know what to do. He was faced with his own death and he knew this was real. It wasn't just, well, you never know, you might be killed. He was pretty certain that he would, he would die. I don't know what happened to him. In the end, he gave his life to the Lord. Now, he was facing death. We haven't had to face institutionally organised death in the West. But we will, because this controls the whole world. Okay? So you face that same problem that you face with the Antichrist now. When my mother was killed in a car accident, God spoke to me the week before and said, Satan wants to kill one of, one of you. And she was killed, run over by a murderer on bail, speeding through our local town within a week. Okay? So you can get killed, even if it's by a car accident. And it's Satan, the great spirit of the Antichrist, the dragon who's behind the beast who did it. And that happens all over the place. Because it's a car accident or a disease, we just tend to think, oh, it's a car accident or disease. No, behind a lot of this is the spirit of Antichrist who hates, who wages war against the people of the covenant. The whore who is drunk with the blood of the saints. That's not going to be a thing just for the Antichrist times in the last three and a half years of, uh, before Jesus returns. That's now. You face that now already. But just imagine you are in the world when the Antichrist does come. And one day they break down your door and drag you off and you say, look, they beat you up and then they say, I want you to worship the beast. Here's his statue over there. You can just bow down and all the rest of it. I want you to give up all this Christianity stuff. What would you do? Would you? Ask yourself that question. Because for a lot of people, it's going to be very real and they're going to die. Now, what's the alternative? Well, you can hide away and hope that none of this takes place. And thereby somehow submit to a lot of the intimidation. Because it is intimidating. But you've already died with Christ. You know, dying is not the problem for Christians. When you die, and it may, it may take seconds, if you had your head chopped off, it takes a split second, you are then carried away into heaven. What about my loved ones? What, about, what happened to them, my family, my friends, and all the rest of it? 
God will look after them. That's where your faith comes in. That's where you trust him. But you will be faced some way or other in your life if the Antichrist is around and you're around when he's around with your own death. Now, what the Antichrist wants you to do now is to get scared. The Bible says never, ever, ever get scared. All right? Because he's scared of you. He's scared that you will remain faithful to Jesus and have your head chopped off. That's what he's scared of. Because that's a failure for him. What he wants is for you to be intimidated and coerced and be made fearful so that you will bow down and deny Christ or whatever he wants you to do. If you make up your minds now that in the event that you face physical death in the future, that will make it very, very much more easier for you then. See, every Christian who is born again has to face the fact they're going to die. Now, we tend to die when we're 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, or whatever it is. We might die of old age or disease, and we, we don't really think about that very much. But Jesus said, um, But I say to you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Why would he say that? Well, because you're going to face your body being killed. And after that, have no more that they can do. So don't feel, that's like saying don't fear the Antichrist. But I will show you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. I tell you, fear him. That fear of God has to have preeminence over the fear of anything else. Because if you are afraid of the Antichrist, you will succumb to him. I'll tell you why. How do you overcome the devil? It says so in uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. They were repentant. By the word of their testimony, Jesus is Lord. And they did not fear their lives even unto death. You see, facing fear makes a church successful because you can't scare it off. Because the devil's attempt is to scare you with the threat of death. If you're not scared by the threat of death, you will overcome the devil. So why is it that in all these countries out there where Christians are killed, it's always the threat of death? Because he hopes you will succumb and run away and you won't, people won't get converted and they won't go out and preach the gospel. But if you have that reticence in you now and are not prepared to face that reticence now, you are holding on to a reticence that when it comes into the heat of the actual moment, you may rather deny Jesus than have your head chopped off or whatever else he's got in store for you. That's very, very important. If you want to be an overcoming church, you face the issue that tomorrow you may be deliberately killed because of the words that come out of your mouth. I will not deny Jesus. That's an overcoming church. And the spirits of Antichrist threaten people with death today. They do it in all these other countries where godless regimes uh, uh, hold power. Crucial point. You know, your family, your church, your community, the people in the road you live in, the people in Cambridge are depending, absolutely depending, that you do not fear death. You do not fear the Antichrist or the spirits of Antichrist. You see, if you have that fear, and that fear gets a grip on you, it becomes a stronghold in your life, you will fall to sorcery, and there's nothing you can do about it. Because the spirit of Antichrist, the whore of Babylon controls the world, it says in Revelation chapter 18, verse 23, by sorcery, by spiritual power, authoritative spiritual power. You, will, you cannot sideline yourselves from true commitment to Jesus and all that he's doing and still not, and still not be subject to sorcery, because you will be, because that intimidation is spiritual. The devil gave his authority and power 
to the Antichrist, to the beast. It's spiritual, all right? And that is supernatural power. The only way it can be combated is by a greater spiritual power, and that is in Jesus. Your commitment to Jesus, to this church, to Cambridge, will is like a light. And the light has come into the world and the darkness could not overcome it. If yours gets diminished because of fear or sin, the delusion of unrighteousness, which is what the C of E and the Methodists and all the rest have fallen for, if it gets diminished, your family will suffer. Your community will suffer. Your church will suffer. And the people of Cambridge will suffer. Because you are the only light. Well, there's maybe others, other Christians as well, of course, around here. And it is what they need more than anything else. You give in to fear, you'll inculcate that fear and that deception of unrighteousness into your family, into your children, into your street, into your church, and into Cambridge. The devil is depending on you to run away, to hide. The more you love Jesus, the more you commit yourself to him, the, the lesser fear you have, the more your family will be blessed and Cambridge itself will be blessed. Cambridge is depending on you. Not just for, oh, alleviation from Antichrist sorcery, but for salvation that will get them into heaven forever. That is a crucial point. So if we are reticent about our commitment, don't think we can evade sorcery because we will come under sorcery. This is not something where you can say, I'll be somewhere in the middle. There is no middle. You, because everything that's outside Christ is the world, the flesh and the devil. And that's under the dominion and subject to spirits of sorcery. You see this happening with the C of E. Now, you know, I know everybody likes to bash the C of E, and fair enough, okay, they've asked for it. But, you know, but the thing about this is, look what they've done. Fear of man, fear of disapproval, fear of being offensive. They have taken the two commandments of God. What's the first commandment? You should love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. What's the second one? Love your neighbour as yourself. They have reversed that. We will love our neighbour as ourselves. That's the first and greatest commandment. We will include men and uh, love them all. We will be inclusive. And what happens? They exclude God. You cannot reverse what God is doing and still retain a relationship with God. That is absolutely essential. They have reversed those two commandments. And now for the sake of unity and inclusiveness, the greatest commandment is we will accept anybody and everybody. The Archbishop of York and I think the Bishop of London made a statement and they said anybody in a long-term relationship, faithful relationship, um, sexual relationships between them is acceptable. That's outside marriage. They're now preaching that fornication is acceptable. They took one step into the mire and now they're two steps into the mire. And they are diminishing the light in this country. And darkness is growing. And sorcery is growing because of what they've done. That's why Jesus says it's better for them to be given a millstone, a length of rope, taken with a one-way ticket out into the sea. 